Frustrated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this week we're talking about invisible people, both voluntary and cursed. (laughs) But before we get to that, Emily, do you have any highlights from the week? I do. My highlight is that on Halloween, one of my favourite podcasts, Okilla Novella, did a live show version of their podcast, which was streamed. It's a serial killer podcast, but it's very funny as well, and it's a cool way to spend Halloween when you can't leave the house. Yeah, definitely. Um, treat, yeah, it, treat rather than a trick. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. They had good costumes on as well, especially Carrie, who was dressed as an incel <laughs> with multiple props. Oh uh, dear. For example, a t-shirt that said a debate me female on it, oh my which God. was incredible. And yeah, I'm always happy to like support them. So yeah, that was... That was my highlight. Nice. How about you? My highlight is probably much less exciting, but I finally this week looked at my novel again after <laughs> literally months of just pretending it didn't exist. So I started writing again in prose. Full sentences. No poetry here. <laughs> it's very difficult and I hate it and I don't know why I'm doing it, but you know. That's good though that you've started. <laughs> I've started again. So... What's your infatuation this week? My infatuation is The Invisible Life of Adi LaRue by V.E. Schwab. (sighs) Which is so good. (laughs) It's so good. Can I also just say, I don't know if you noticed this, but so Adi has seven freckles. Freckles. There's (gasps) There's seven dots on the cover. Yeah. I did not notice that. And I think that's meant to be like the wood of the yeah. the ring. Yeah. Yeah, I figured that, but I did not notice the, the dots on the cover. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to start by saying that this is like my new favourite book. <laughs> or at least it's tied with The Starless Sea, which you guys have heard me mention like a million times as a favourite. And I know that sounds like hyperbole because I literally just read it. But for, like, for some reason, it just hit me in a way that made me fall in love with it. And also, if you couldn't tell, Rebecca read this straight after me. So she'll yeah. be able to weigh in on some stuff too. I, uh, I needed to see what had had such an impact on <laughs> And I couldn't wait until we'd done this. So yeah, this book came out on the 6th of October, 2020. And the very simplified logline of this book is that a woman, Adi LaRue makes a deal with the devil and is granted immortality but the curse she is left with is that everyone she meets will forget her and then one day she meets someone who remembers her dun 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 so such a good premise it is and that was all i knew when i ordered this book i'd seen some artwork that rosie thorns was commissioned to do for it which i loved Uh, and then i saw like the premise of the book and then bought it and i think we should try and repost the artwork because if you've read the book there's so many like tiny hidden details Mm. in the artwork it's very lovely did you get the artwork with the book no 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 it was only with certain copies i see and yeah i don't want to say like too much plot wise because the beauty of this book is like watching her life unfold and seeing how her curse works in unexpected ways and it's really one you should read without knowing too much about it but i did attend the waterstones launch for this event and i took notes again because I'm a geek yeah and so I've basically written 
my piece off of Swab's guidance, so I'm not going to mention anything that she didn't mention and what she deemed as a spoiler-free conversation. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, Check you with the forward thinking. Thank you. So, let's talk about this book. Yeah, let's talk about it. It jumps between the present day, which is actually 2014 in Mm. this book, and Addie's past, beginning in 1714. And the bits of Addie's past are chronological, but they're intercut with like the present day narrative. And it's essentially three acts over three centuries. And this is a book that has its power in like the gradual build up. Yeah, definitely. So the pace is really steady, but then slowly increasing. It works on like surprise and suspense and then finally it hits a certain point in the narrative which I obviously won't say and then it's as if time is like hurtling at us and you're really quickly (laughs) reaching the end of the story. Each section of the book of which there are six also has a piece of artwork which corresponds to that section of the book. Art is one of the huge themes of this novel so it's a really nice touch having some of it to look at. And I just wanted to ask, did you have a favourite piece of art? I Yeah, I definitely did. The the night sky piece of yeah, art. Yeah, that's um, a nice one. Like, it was called something like A Forgotten Night. Mm-hmm. Probably because I found that story, which I won't say, very yeah. affecting. But like for all the pieces of artwork, you sort of find out more about them through the story. Mm-hmm. But that one like really hit me mm. the hardest. And I thought it was really pretty as well. Yeah. Did you? I Yeah, I liked that one. And I liked the heart sculpture one Yeah, as that well. Was cool. uh, especially because of the section of the book that comes after that. Which again, I will not say. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, before I even go into like the story and characters and stuff, I thought I would start with the writing style itself words are very important in this book as are semantics one of the huge themes is about like the exact words that we choose being important and obviously the author's words are important she picked these words specifically to tell the story but it's also wholly important to the three main characters Addie, Luke and Henry it's also very poetic and I think this is because Schwab was originally going to write it in verse so it would have been an epic poem which is very interesting because Addie and Henry who's the man who remembers her, meet in a bookshop where she steals a copy of the Odyssey. Mm. So it's just a nice wee bit of intertextuality because she's on an Odyssey herself. It's a very epic journey that we're following. You can totally tell that it was going to be in verse as well. It's so, like, musical. Yeah, and some of the book still looks like poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, There's parts from Henry's perspective that are, like, super short lines one after another that do look like a poem standing Mm -hmm. alone on the page and Schwab also said that in an early draft Luke who is the old gods or he's just been referred to as like the devil for marketing purposes because that's easier to explain but yeah that Luke would recite a line of poetry when he and Addie would meet each year and it just ended up like not working for the book but you can still see very poetic language throughout it and I wanted to read a very early part of the book, which is just a little like scene-setting moment that I really loved. March is such a fickle month. It is the scene between winter and spring. Though seams suggest an even hem, and March is more like a rough line of stitches sewn by an unsteady hand, swinging wildly between January gusts and June greens. You don't know what you'll find until you step outside. Estelle used to call these the restless days, when the warmer-blooded gods began to stir and the cold ones began to settle, when dreamers were most prone to bad ideas and wanderers were likely to get lost. Addie has always been predisposed to both. 
It makes sense, then, that she was born on the 10th of March, right along the ragged seam, though it's been so long since Addie felt like celebrating. For 23 years, she dreaded the marker of time, what it meant, that she was growing up, growing old. And then, for centuries, a birthday was a rather useless thing, far less important than the night she signed away her soul. I, re- I remember reading that paragraph as well and like the line March is such a fickle month mm. like you just ca- you can't not read on after that yeah I know also my birthday is the 9th of March so I just feel a little kinship there there you go <laughs> I think it's fair to say I'm also a dreamer who sometimes gets lost <laughs> but yeah I just think it's really beautiful writing and I've never thought about describing a month in a year like that mm. but it makes so much sense yeah like yeah especially you because you like we have a lot of like horoscope jokes but yeah it's also like a good we, you you talked before about using star signs as a way to like test your character's personality mm. traits and i think that like even though that doesn't go into star signs it's used a lot of that kind of mythology yeah to imbue the month with personality yeah definitely And another quote that I think sets the scene really well is this one. And it's actually just the very beginning of the book. Uh, I'm just going to read the first couple pages. I know I've done it slightly backwards, but it made sense in my head. (laughs) The girl wakes up in someone else's bed. She lies there, perfectly still, tries to hold time like a breath in her chest, as if she can keep the clock from ticking forward, keep the boy beside her from waking, keep the memory of their night alive through sheer force of will. She knows, of course, that she can't. Knows that he'll forget. They always do. It isn't his fault. It is never their faults. The boy is still asleep, and she watches the slow rise and fall of his shoulders, the place where his dark hair curls against the nape of his neck, the scar along his ribs. Details long memorised. His name is Toby. Last night, she told him hers was Jess. She lied, but only because she can't say her real name one of the vicious little details tucked like nettles in the grass, hidden barbs designed to sting. What is a person if not the marks they leave behind? She has learned to step between the thorny weeds, but there are some cuts that cannot be avoided. A memory, a photograph, a name. In the last month, she has been Claire, Zoe, Michelle, but two nights ago, when she was ill, and they were closing down a late night cafe after one of his gigs. Toby said that he was in love with a girl named Jess. He simply hadn't met her yet. So now she is Jess. Toby begins to start, and she feels the old familiar ache in her chest as he stretches, rolls toward her, but doesn't wake, not yet. His face is now inches from her, his lips parted in sleep, black curls shadowing his eyes, dark lashes against fair cheeks. Once, the darkness teased the girl as they strolled along the Seine, told her that she had the type, insinuating that most of the men she chose, and even a few of the women, looked an awful lot like him. The same dark hair, the same sharp eyes, the same etched features. But that wasn't fair. After all, the darkness only looked the way he did because of her. She'd given him that shape, chosen what to make of him, what to see. Don't you remember, she told him then, when you were nothing but shadow and smoke. Darling, he'd said in his soft, rich way, I was the night itself. Now it is morning, in another city, another century, the bright sunlight cutting through the curtains, and Toby shifts again, rising up through the surface of sleep. And the girl who is, was, 
Jess holds her breath again as she tries to imagine a version of this day where he wakes and sees her and remembers, where he smiles and strokes her cheek and says good morning. But it won't happen like that and she doesn't want to see the familiar vacant expression, doesn't want to watch as the boy tries to fill in the gaps where memories of her should be. Witness as he pulls together his composure into practice nonchalance. The girl has seen that performance often enough knows the motions by heart, so instead she slides from the bed and pads barefoot out into the living room. It's so sad. I know. So yeah, as I said, this is like the opening of the book and it just sets everything up so well. Like you're immediately filled in on the fact that this man won't remember when he wakes, the fact that she's experienced this countless times and you're also introduced to Luke who cursed her and the fact that he's there in the opening lines suggests that he's an integral part to this novel he's Mm -hmm. not just the old god who cursed her then left he's as much a part of this story as Addy is and I love the way Schwab writes him too he's very seductive but there's also something incredibly menacing about him Mm. and yeah I think these two quotes right from the beginning of the text show us what kind of book we're in for it's going to be beautiful and poetic and lyrical, but it's also got a dark side and a very heartbreaking side too. And yeah, I just love it. <laughs> I think like that line where he says, like, darling, I was the night itself. Oh. The fact that that's his first line mm. of dialogue mm-hmm. tells you everything you need to know about him. Yeah, definitely. So I wanted to change pace a wee bit and take a moment to talk about the fact that Addy is a woman. Mm. Most of the Faustian or like bargaining tales are about men. Mm. They often have quite like fun hedonistic lifestyles, uh, as if they have like no cares. But Addie's immortality starts in seventeen fourteen, and so for many of the three hundred years of her life, she doesn't have the option of being carefree. She's a woman; she can't move through the world that way. There are restrictions on her on the way she dresses, whether she's walking out alone, alone at night she has more rules to follow than a man would and so you have like this extra element of difficulty navigating life yeah I really appreciated the inclusion of that yeah also Schwab says that she doesn't think many men would last as long as Addy she's forgotten constantly but she does manage to become amused to artists which is something I'll talk more about in a moment but she can't take credit for the art she inspires because the artists don't remember that she was the one being the muse in the first place So essentially she can't have an ego and Schwab thinks a lot of men would have an issue with that. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's not wrong. (laughs) But yeah, let's talk about art. So Addy can't tell people her real name and they forget her as soon as she's out of sight of them. But she can revisit those people over and over and influence them in some way in like a slow accumulation of ideas. So she poses for drawings, paintings, she gives someone the idea for a club, she plays piano for a musician. She's trying to find ways to leave her mark on the world and being amused is how she does that. So this is a quote between Addie and Henry where she's basically like explaining the parameters of her curse and how she's using art to push the limits of it. Henry shakes his head. I thought you couldn't leave a mark. I can't, she says, looking up. I can't hold a pen. I can't tell a story. I can't wield a weapon or make someone remember. But art, she says with a quieter smile. Art is about ideas, and ideas are wilder than memories. They're like weeds, always finding their way up. But no photographs, no film. 
Her expression falters, just a fraction. No, she says, the word a shape on her lips, and he feels bad for asking, for drawing her back to the bars of her curse instead of the gaps she's found between them. But then Addie straightens, lifts her chin, smiles with an almost defiant kind of joy. But isn't it wonderful, she says, to be an idea. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, it makes me cry. <laughs> I love, like, obviously last week we were talking about V for Vendetta. Mm. Um, and, like, the ideas ideas are bulletproof is, like, the tagline of that yeah. film. And so, like, when I was reading this book, I was just like, oh, ideas are bulletproof. <laughs> Um, yeah it's so good I know what I love about this bit is that as well as like understanding her philosophy on her long life we're also delving into more like general philosophy of like art and writing that idea of ideas are wilder than memories just makes my heart warm because Mm -hmm. I'm a very like nostalgic person anyway and I like going back into like my memories and Schwab described Addie as treating her memories like a museum that she can visit and like I do think I do that Mm. but there's also some power in being a writer or another kind of artist someone who can create something from nothing and Mm -hmm. I think that's what Schwab was inspired by the idea of the muse of that random inspiration that hits you suddenly and how it could be a person who you don't remember talking to Um, and as well I love this quote in its context as well like I think it's a very clear example of Addie admitting that being a muse is for herself like for her own gain it's so that she has like proof of her existence yeah um, and Henry describes her as having a defiant kind of joy because yeah I don't think her choosing to be a muse is purely altruistic like I don't think it's for the sake of art I think on some level she actually does it as a way of spiting look yeah definitely um, so I've got a quote here that conveys that basically like competitive nature that she and Luke have it's so funny as well because I wrote a poem like three years ago mm-hmm. and I don't remember most of it but the first line was a muse is a mute oh. but then like reading this book it made me be like hmm <laughs> maybe not <laughs> yeah the darkness shifts like a curtain at her back how long will you carry on he muses what is the point of dragging yourself through another day when there is no reprieve? Questions she has asked herself in the dead of night, moments of weakness when winter sank its teeth into her skin, or hunger clawed against her bones, when a space was taken, a day's work undone, a night's peace lost, and she could not bear the thought of rising to do it all again. And yet, hearing the words parroted back like this, in his voice instead of hers, they lose a measure of their venom. Don't you see, he says, green eyes sharp as broken glass. There is no end besides the one I offer. All you have to do is yield. I saw an elephant, says Addie, and the words are like cold water on coals. The darkness stills beside her and she continues, gazed fixed on the ramshackle house and the broken roof and the open sky above. Two, in fact. They were in the palace grounds as part of some display. I didn't know animals could be so large. And there was a fiddler in the square the other day, she presses on, her voice steady, and his music made me cry. It was the prettiest song I'd ever heard. I had champagne, drank it straight from the bottle, and watched the sunset over the Seine while the bells rang out from Notre Dame, and none of it would have happened back in Villon. She turns to look at him. It has only been two years, she says. Think of all the time I have, 
and all the things I'll see. Addy grins at the shadow then, a small, feral smile, all teeth, feasting on the way the humour falls from his face. It is a small victory, and yet so sweet, to see him falter, even for an instant. And then, suddenly, he is too close, the air between them snuffed like a candle. He smells of summer nights, of earth, and moss, and tall grass waving beneath stars, and of something darker, of blood on rocks and wolves loose in the woods. He leans in until his cheek brushes against hers, and when he speaks again, the words are little more than whispers over skin. You think it will get easier, he says. It will not. You are as good as gone, and every year you live will feel a lifetime, and in every lifetime you will be forgotten. Your pain is meaningless. Your life is meaningless. The years will be like weights around your ankles. They will crush you, bit by bit, and when you cannot stand it, you will beg me to put you from your misery. Addy pulls back to face the darkness, but he is already gone. She stands alone on the narrow road, inhales a low, unsteady breath, forces it out again, and then straightens and smooths her skirts and makes her way into the broken house that, tonight at least, is home. The air snuffed like a candle. Mm. I love that line. Yeah, it's good. I love all the ways that she describes him. Mm. She always talks about how, like, how he smells and like how he sounds, and it's always very like natural like mm. imagery it's oh so good but yeah this is such a great scene to me because like there are moments when Adi doubts her existence her life ends when she decides it does like that was the bargain made mm. and so there are moments when she considers that but this scene with the simple line I saw an elephant interrupting him is just such a kick in the face to him mm-hmm. it's great and it's worth noting too that like that's what keeps her going it isn't a pure hope Schwab described it as a stubborn hope it's her proving him wrong. It's also following the notion of, like, as dark as things get, you never know what you're going to see tomorrow. Yeah. And Schwab said that she originally wrote Addy as a tired character, but because Addy's deal hinged on her being done with her soul, she actually needed to write her as the opposite Mm. because she needed to be hopeful or else what is the point in staying alive for 300 years? It's such a good metaphor as well, though, because I think, like... A lot of times when people are, you know, in the pits of despair, mm-hmm. like that's the only thing that is sort of unknown. Yeah, do you know what I mean, like you yeah. can know all the despair that you feel. Yeah, but you can't know what the next day will bring, and sometimes that's all that people have. And yeah. Addy like literally lives that because it is all that she has materially. Yeah, or not. Yeah, just love how she talks about her experience in life this way, and also being amused this way she could be hopeless but she isn't because she has art and I think that's very lovely Mm. and so I also wanted to talk about the character of Henry so I'm not going to say a lot about his character because it would just totally be a spoiler but he was my favourite character's head to be inside and so I wanted to mention him Mm. Schwab described him in a live stream as your cinnamon roll boyfriend Um, and even though he definitely does some non-cinnamon roll things I do agree a little yeah I kind of see (laughs) Um, what she means so Henry is the character that she was most concerned about writing. She felt that if she did him wrong, people would hate him. He is white, middle class. He's a millennial who doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. But he has enough privilege that he can flounder and not, it's not going to like ruin his life. Mm. And he is queer, but originally he was straight as well. Right. So in order to make us connect with him, Schwab did what writers are often told not to do, but which I disagree with for the record, which is that she made Henry herself basically and I think it works brilliantly and 
to be quite honest, I really related to him. And even though he goes down a much darker path than I ever have, I was totally nodding along with a lot of his like feelings and thought processes, just mm-hmm. like how he reacted to things. He doesn't know what he wants to do with his life and he has this total fear over choosing the quote-unquote right path in life. Yeah. And he believes that if he picks one, then he has to disregard all the others, but he feels like he's left it too late to pick one now, so he just won't pick any, but he'll then worry about that instead. Yeah. And then It's the millennial fear. <laughs> yeah. And Schwab said she wrote Henry as the person she would have been if she hadn't found writing. And I think when you read his character, he feels very real. And knowing that, like, she said that makes me realise how brave she was to write a character like that. I know this is very hard to understand when you don't really understand his character, but just believe me. And yeah, that's all I'm really going to say about him, because otherwise I'll just spoil too much. Yeah. He is a very real character. That did strike me about him. Yeah. All of the characters feel three-dimensional and fleshed out. Yeah, But he was the one that I feel like I've met. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to end by like talking about what this book meant to me. But before I do that, I wanted to just ask if there's anything like you want to mention that you think I've left out. The thing that struck me like in a writerly way about this book mm-hmm. that took a while for me to understand why she was doing it mm-hmm. is that it is all written in present active tense. Mm-hmm. To begin with, like I found that quite jarring. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Like, I thought it was going to be just the introduction that you read, like, the, the girl does this, blah, 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 but no, it's the whole book. And then it occurred to me that Addie doesn't have a past or a future, she only has the present because no one remembers her. Yeah. So I thought that was, like, a very well-thought-out detail. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to do that. The book would have still been good if it had been written in the past tense, yeah. like most books are. Yeah. I always think that tense makes a story feel very magical as well it makes yeah. it sound like a fairy tale yeah it's quite fabulous um because like that's what Erin Morgenstern does both of her books are written in that mm. tense as well but yeah I haven't read yeah. I've I, the only book that I've read that I remember that's in the present tense and it's not even all the way through is Idaho which I've talked about oh, on this yeah, before yeah. and there it's used to make it very like sinister and filled with suspense mm-hmm. so I hadn't really yeah, I hadn't really come across that, and when I realised that it was really relevant to the story, mm. then it made me happy. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. So yeah, to end, I basically realised recently that if a book makes me want to write, then that is an important book to me. Because we love books, mm. and I'm sure you'll agree that sometimes you just read a book and you're like, oh, that was fun. Yeah. And sometimes you're like, this actually means something to yeah, me. <laughs> And I was thinking about it recently about like all the books I call my favourite books and I could see the link between them all was that one, they were all about storytelling in some form Mm. and two, they made me like itch to write something myself. So I think it's why I'll call Adi LaRue and The Starlessy my favourites because they capture that total magic that I feel when reading. Like, they get me sucked into the story and the characters and, like, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But they also make me want to create my own thing that hopefully one day will make, like, at least one person feel the same way as I do when reading those. Yeah. And again, like, it's not something I can talk about loads because it will spoil the book, but there's a line towards the end of Adi LaRue that made me bawl my eyes out. And the gist of it was that, like, stories can be bigger than us. Mm. And I think that's a very, like, lovely and magical thought. Yeah. And it's what really, like, solidified my love for this book. 
because I do think storytelling is its own kind of magic. So when a text so beautifully describes that, I feel like it has a special place in my heart. And Adi is consistently referred to as a dreamer and a lot of people say that to her in a bad way. But I think this book shows how it can be a good thing. It actually kind of saves her life, yeah. the fact that she's a dreamer. And as someone who is often referred to as a dreamer, I feel a bit of kinship there. Definitely. Um, so yeah, that's my lengthy conclusion. As you can all tell, I'm sure this is a book that struck a chord with me. And there's so much I haven't been able to mention because it will just give the game away. Like there's so many beautiful quotes I wish I could read out. I have so many post-its in that book, but I could only pick a tiny amount because the rest would just ruin it. Yeah, I read um, the book. I read Emily's copy after she read it, <laughs> and I was literally having to like peel back post-its on every page <laughs> just about to see the line underneath. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe one day like I'll do a spoiler episode on it or something, because I feel like I have more to say. But anyway, yeah, that's why I wholeheartedly recommend reading it, because there's a lot to discover and I just love it and that is me (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's so funny that you said that you like related to Henry the most but obviously you have so much kinship with Addy as well yeah I I feel like the the I feel like the inverse whereas like I feel Mm. like I related to Addy the most but some of the things that Henry like experiences just make him feel so real and relatable yeah I I don't know there's just I think the whole thing about like the storms, like he has, this isn't a spoiler, like he has like panic attacks and stuff and like it was, he would describe it as like a storm coming over him and I was mm. like, I relate to that. <laughs> See, I think it's, for me with Addie, it's like the defiance yeah. and the stubbornness. And she wants and, like, to be a tree. <laughs> yeah, and she really wants to be a tree and I really just want to be a tree, it's all my soul wants. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I just think it's a great book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'd never read any Schwab before. Um, I, I haven't either. But I really enjoyed yeah. it. So yeah, that is me. What is your infatuation this week? My infatuation this week is the debut novel from one of our flat four heroes, Dolly Alderton. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's called Ghosts and it came out just last month as well. And yet it's fittingly called Ghosts because it has been haunting me since I read it. <laughs> And I actually didn't think when I ordered it that I would talk about it on the pod because although I knew that Alderton's fictional debut would be just as like clever and engaging as our non-fiction, mm-hmm. everything I know about love was Dolly Alderton, for anyone that doesn't know, I didn't think that there would be an awful lot to analyse in her fiction. I don't mm. know why I thought that, but since reading it, the more I've realised how like well put together it is and how thoroughly it explores the title word ghosts in all its storylines and arcs. Mm -hmm. So I I need to talk about it. Little spoiler alert, I'm going to give away some of the smaller plot points, so if you don't want to know anything at all, skip. But even the things I've picked out only make up a tiny part of the book, and there's so much left untouched, so it will be worth reading either way. So... Ghosts is the story of quote-unquote the strangest year in the life of Nina George Dean who is a food writer living in London and her 32nd birthday kicks off the novel. So Nina is single, she has just bought her own one-bedroom flat for the first time and she she's promoting her second food book while writing her third. And the main plot of the novel, but I use that word main quite loosely, <laughs> is that this is the year Nina tries online dating for the first time. 
she downloads an app called Lynx, which is basically like Tinder. And in the first half of the novel, Nina meets a man on Lynx called Max. They start dating. For five months, they fall deeper and deeper in love until one day Max disappears. And that's that's not a spoiler, that's on the jacket. <laughs> he stops returning calls and texts, stops showing up. Like, the most drastic sense of the word, he ghosts her. And so that's, like, all that I thought the novel was about, and that's why I didn't really think that I would talk about it. Just a little aside for a minute. Let's let's talk about ghosting. <laughs> <laughs> the dictionary defines ghosting because it's in the dictionary now as the practice of ending a personal relationship with someone by suddenly and without explanation withdrawing from all communication. And it's quite a modern thing, but obviously it's established enough that it's in the dictionary, and anyone who has had it done to them knows that it is horrible, and anyone who's done it definitely should feel guilty. (laughs) So it would be enough of a justification to write a novel just about that, which is like still a weird and like underrepresented behaviour because it's new. And I think what drew me to the book initially was that it's marketed as a book that takes ghosting quite seriously. And that was like a comforting thing for me to hear just in the marketing of it, because Mm -hmm. the kind of overarching narrative I think about ghosting is that it's done in casual relationships Mm. and therefore it should be taken casually. Mm -hmm. But often it is quite seriously hurtful to people. Yeah. So I was glad that the book wasn't just making it like a plot point, but it was making it the plot. Yeah, I didn't realise that they had been going out for so long. Mm-hmm. Like, just from like what I've heard about the book, I just assumed it was going to be like, oh, we started talking, it was great, and then he disappeared. I didn't realise it was going to be like, they were yeah. properly in a relationship. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make, is that it's like... We're not talking about you have one conversation with someone on an app and then they'd never reply again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about an actual relationship that then someone just dips yeah. out. And so the reason I think that Alderton's chosen to centre a novel around that isn't necessarily just because it's relatable, but because it actually brings up like quite a potent existential dilemma about where a person exists. And she seems to be really interested in that. So Nina proclaims at one point after being ghosted real human people can't just be deleted. And I think we can all relate to the like that very particular strangeness of feeling like someone exists only in your phone mm. or only in your virtual life, or if we're that for someone. And obviously ghosting is called ghosting because it's like the person has suddenly died, like they've essentially vanished. Mm. But this idea of like a spirit or an essence being separate from a real person comes up in every single avenue of the book. Alderton really explores that. So aside from romantic ghosting, I'm wanting to talk about three motifs or narratives that she uses to explore where a person is. And those are ageing, sex and food. So she brings up the idea of the mind versus the body a lot in this book by focusing on the relationship between reality, imagination and memory. Which, like, when I was reading (laughs) Adi LaRue, I was like, wow, we're on a theme. So outside the Nina and Max arc, which I won't say too much about. The secondary narrative is that Nina finds out her dad, who she's really close to, has got dementia right at the start of the book. And so across the year that this book looks at, we get a lot of insight into the highs and lows, into his like deterioration. So the majority of like that real-life physical drama in the book comes from that storyline. And that contrasts really cleanly with the like virtual mental drama of Max Ghosting. Mm-hmm. Like Bill, her dad, 
his signs of deterioration are all shown in his behaviours. Like at one point he gets stuck driving on a roundabout because he becomes disorientated. Mm. He turns up at his childhood home instead of going to the one that he's lived in for the last 40 years. And so in this part that I'm going to read out, it's quite long, but I think it's worth it. It's Bill's birthday and he's not lucid and he's being quite aggressive. So he storms away inside from Nina and her mum and their two friends. And then she writes... We heard a noise from inside the house. Sudden, sharp, high-pitched. We all got up from the table and rushed into the house. Dad stood over the kitchen sink with blood dripping from his hand. He looked up at us with a confused expression that made him look disturbingly childlike. What happened, Mum said, running over to him. I was trying to open a tin of beans, he said, wincing as Mum touched his hand. I glanced at the kitchen counter. There was the tin, with a small split pierced through, a chopping knife next to it, and large splashes of blood leading to the sink. Why were you trying to open it with a knife? I have always opened tins with a blade, he said. You use a tin opener, Dad, it's here. I don't know what to do, Mum said, I can't see how deep it is. Let me have a look. Gloria leant down to examine him. I'm first aid trained, she boasted. Should we go to a hospital? I asked. No, I don't think so. It really hurts, Dad yelped earnestly, like a little boy persuading his mummy that he's worthy of a cuddle. He was suddenly seven years old, cowering into himself, clinging on to mum. My dad, so curious and confident, my father the headmaster. I'd never seen him this tiny. I think it just needs to be cleaned up in some dissolvable stitches, Gloria said. I'll pop home to get them and come back. Until then, just apply pressure with a tea towel. Dad said nothing for the rest of the afternoon. He said nothing when we tried to distract him with tea and talk while Gloria got her first aid kit. He grimaced silently when Gloria applied the dressing to his cut. He said nothing when we sang happy birthday to him. He didn't eat the banana cake with condensed milk icing. When I said goodbye, he remained still and stiff as I wrapped my arms around him in a hug. I wished there was a way I could access the filing cabinet of his mind and keep track of which memories were being lost and when. I knew there was no way of retaining them on his behalf, but I longed to understand what version of the world he was seeing at any given moment. If he thought I was a 15-year-old preparing for summer exams, what else in the 17 years of our relationship since had been wiped? So much of the love you feel for a person is dependent on the vast archive of shared memories you can access just by seeing their face or hearing their voice. When I saw Dad, I didn't just see a 77-year-old man with black and grey hair. I saw him in a swimming pool in Spain, teaching me how to front crawl, and I saw him waving at me in the crowd on graduation day. I saw him dropping me off for my first morning of primary school and leading a conga line around the living room on Christmas Eve. But what would happen now that only I could access that shared archive of our history? What would he feel for me, and what would I be to him, as these memory files dwindled from his side? Would I become just a 32-year-old woman with brown hair and a vaguely familiar face, standing in his house, offering food he didn't want. I walked to Pinner Station. The next train wasn't for 15 minutes, as was characteristic of London's own five tube stations. I sat on the platform bench, took my phone from my bag and re-downloaded links, desperate for a distraction. I flipped through 2D humans like the pages of a catalogue, reading meaningless declarations of identity, love socialism, hate coriander, sarcasm is my religion, always big spoon, Mancunian Aquarius, my weakness is intelligent women. Is it weird that I always brush my teeth in the shower? Next on my bucket list, the Grand Canyon. Dogs are better than humans. I have a thing for girls with their hair tied back. 
Interesting facts about me, I've never been on a tram. Coys! Love me some pubbage on a Sunday. Would rather die than eat a mushroom. I have lived in 10 countries and 13 cities. When people ask if I'm a legs or a boobs man, I'm a pussy man. Working in the emergency services, but also writing a sitcom. Carpe diem is my mantra. Detox to retox. Korean cinema, rainy days, strong tea. Message me if you got a fat ass and tiny tits with puffy nips. Pineapple does not belong on pizza. Poly, pansexual, sex plus. No remain voters, please. All of these hobbies and preferences and politics and history were those the essential ingredients of a human? Were those the pillars of ego and id? If these declarations were the construction of a self, then Dad was in the long, slow process of dismantling and destroying his. He couldn't remember where he was born or his favourite meal, his daughter's name or the students he'd taught. What would be left of him as the knowledge, predilections and memories accumulated over a lifetime, so precise and vivid, were removed? I thought about what Mum had said, that who you are is just what you wake up and do every day. I hope that she was right. That's so sad. I know, it's really, really heartbreaking. Yeah. But it's also funny, which is yeah, typical yeah. of Dolly Alderton. <laughs> but I just, I wanted to read that because I feel like it's so, so well done, so deftly woven. Mm. Like, all these ideas of, like, that was two and a half pages, and you had, like, the fallibility of the body fallibility of the mind fragility of personhood and she skims it so quickly and it's as funny as it is tragic and i just love the way she takes this big massive like millennia old philosophical question of like is a person defined by their ideals or their actions and breaks it down into like a real life grounded scenario will bill still be bill without his memories if he keeps acting like bill Mm. and so you can see that she's taken like the ghost motif here and she's put it into these literal, like, spectral terms where the ghost is the essence or the spirit of a person and she's wondering where in a person it resides. Yeah. Which I just thought was, like, way cleverer than I <laughs> expected this yeah. book to be, which is says more about me than it does about Dolly Alderton. And the other two examples that I want to talk about really feed into that idea. One of the major motifs in this book is food. As I said before, Nina is a food writer and her books are quite symbolic of her like life trajectory. So we hear about her debut, Taste, which is a hybrid memoir and recipe book, definitely influenced <laughs> by Nora Ephron's Heartburn. Yeah. Um, we know that Alderton herself is a huge Ephron fan. Yeah. And so that one sort of stands for Nina discovering herself. Then she has her second book, Tiny Kitchen, and that's about cooking in a small space sort of symbolises Nina's late 20s and like her status as a single adult who looks after herself. And then when we meet her here, she's developing an idea for a third book, but she can't really get any traction. Um, there's a really wonderful scene with her editor, Vivian, who is an absolute treat of a character. Um, I'm, I'm not going to read the scene, but she describes Nina's first idea as a bit you, Kip. <laughs> But throughout the book, we see how food is like a solace for Nina and the other characters. And it comes up like consistently, but very quietly Mm. until this one paragraph of quite overt reflection where we can see the idea for what will be her third book starting to arrive. She's had a bit of a bad day. Okay. I picked up ingredients to make tomato soup that night for dinner. It was a particular kind, the recipe for which I'd spent some time perfecting for the new book. A sweet, smooth, infantile soup that replicated a tin of cream of tomato. It's what I craved when I was low. When I wanted to remember a time when someone pressed their cool hand on my forehead when they were worried about my health, 
or gave me a time I had to go to bed so I didn't have to think about it myself. On the way into the supermarket, I saw the homeless woman who once told me she liked party rings when I asked her if she'd like anything from the shop. I always picked up a packet for her if she was there. A stooping elderly man with a spine arched like a crescent moon unloaded his trolley in front of me at the till. A bag of cat food and three miniature trifles. I wondered if his mum had given him trifle when he was little. Sweet, smooth tomato soup. Sugary round rainbow biscuits. Mushy ambrosial custard and jelly. The contents of supermarket baskets are surely evidence that none of us are coping with adulthood all that well. (laughs) And I like, I love that paragraph because it's not new information. Like, we all know by now that taste is linked to memory. Yeah. That's like why we have the term comfort food. But it's just so relevant to the themes that she's exploring here. Probably because it's the most simple and the most visceral link between the senses and memory. And the idea that, like, everybody has a comfort food. Like, even the homeless lady who some people might argue should be asking for something more nutritious, given Mm. her vulnerability. Or, like, the old man who you maybe would assume is, like, grown out of childish tastes. Like, it just brings home what Nina's discovering through this year of her life, which is that no one really grows up the way they think they will. And the idea of the inner child is also commonly linked to the early ideas of, like, an essence, like, regression a way to access the purest, most unfiltered version of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, speaks again, like, in one way to the dementia storyline. At one point, Nina describes her dad as a concentrated version of himself mm. in his, like, foggier moments. Um, she says it's as if his personality is in technicolor, which is quite like a child. Mm. And it also speaks the other way to the online dating story, which is fraught with, like, literal photo filters and filter personalities and games. Um, so this idea of being unfiltered, obviously, yeah. speaks to that. Yeah, it's just like a really succinct, loaded metaphor, this like foodie nostalgia, and I really liked it. What's your comfort food? What is my comfort food? It's probably soup as well. It's probably my grand's lentil soup, specifically. My grand's chicken soup is my... Yeah, <laughs> with like loads of bread and butter. <laughs> yeah. Or like my mum has her own lentil soup as well, which I also love. But I'm pretty sure all the like cousins and my family can agree that Grand's is the best. <laughs> yeah, I yeah your Grand soup. If you grow if you grow up in Scotland or in yeah. Britain in general, your Grand soup is your comfort food. Yeah. And so the last big aspect of this book that I want to talk about, you'll notice I've been trying really hard not to give away like yeah. <laughs> major plot here <laughs> in relation to all this is something that we don't talk about here for the sake of more delicate years but I think it has earned its place <laughs> and it is the sex scenes in this book okay so I want to acknowledge first of all that this book is almost definitely marketed as like romance chiclet rom-com which is fine because to a degree it is I love romance and I love chiclet but there there's a risk I imagine when you know that's what you're writing to play into like outdated genre conventions which I would say are, like, raunchiness or, like, bodiness. Mm. To have, like, really steamy, hardcore sex scenes every second chapter. Because that's what's been done in those genres a yeah. lot in the past. And again, that's fine. But I think that because that doesn't really shock anyone anymore, the best sex scenes are ones which actually are imbued with character and contribute to the narrative, yeah. rather than just, like, here's some random erotica. And that's exactly what Alderton's done in Ghosts. It is a romance, but... In more than 300 pages, there are three sex scenes. And they're all great, but they're enough. Mm. So that was like a nice little 
observation from my own little writing bank. Yeah. Thank you, Miss Dolly. <laughs> so, what's so impressive to me about the sex scenes in this book is the way that she's used them not only to like push the narrative, but another way to explore the idea of the self and the body. So, I'm going to read two excerpts from two out of the three. I'll be honest, the one I'm not reading is the best one, but I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that for people to discover and show how they compare. They're different encounters with different men, but the men aren't really important. So, here's the first one. He knelt on the floor in front of me, held my chin in his hands and tentatively kissed me. He smelled of tobacco, like wood and raisins. He stroked my cheek with his thumb and clutched the back of my head with his palm. I slid off the chair and sank to the floor so we were both on our knees. We undressed each other and he lay on top of me, pressing his heavy warmth against my body and opening me up firmly and slowly. And then it was urgent, as if we were both now worried the other would disappear. Only one part of me remained in my skin while other Ninas detached and circulated the room. There was the one who was a spectator of the clawing and clinging, who couldn't believe he was inside my home and inside me, that I could not only look up to see his face but feel his body temperature permeate mine. One Nina rejoiced, another one was scared. Another Nina examined him, every move and every sound. And then the second one. I wanted to feel more of him. I hurriedly pulled off his t-shirt. His chest was hard, his skin the colour of almonds. It hugged round the surprisingly muscular curves and hollows of his shoulders and arms that were lean and coltish, at odds with the sallow weariness of his face. He dropped to his knees as he pulled down my tracksuit bottoms so they bunched at my bare feet, which looked laughably adolescent, and he turned me around by my hips so I faced away from him. He took a mouthful of my thigh in between his teeth as I heard him clumsily unbutton his jeans. He held on to the counter as he stood up and pushed himself inside me. I leant forward. We were completely still and breathed slowly as my body got used to him. The steam rose from the sink and onto my face as I felt him move. My hands slipped and plunged into the water, splashing suds onto my bare skin. I felt his laughter reverberate through me, which made me laugh too. He leant down so his stomach pressed against my back and the thin silver chain he wore around his neck tickled my spine. He lifted my hair so it spilt over my face, the tips of its strands dipping in the water. My hands, wearing soap suds like lace gloves, reached behind and grabbed onto his forearms like I was checking he was still there. I dug my fingers into him and let out a guttural noise of relief. I didn't fragment and travel the room. Every part of me remained in my body. I kept my eyes wide open, staring at glasses with red wine sediment and crusty forks that lurked beneath the water and knocked against each other. I felt him slow, stop and shudder. He gasped. We were still again. It had been brief and uncomplicated, unplanned and ungainly and real, soapy, dirty, clattering, awkward, real. We sat opposite each other, half-dressed on my kitchen floor, his back against the oven, my back against the cupboard under the sink. <laughs> love that he's got a Connell's chain. I know. <laughs> I, love, I, love, I noticed that little Easter egg as well. We no. love a Connell's chain. <laughs> So obviously there's lots to unpack there, yeah. but the broad comparison that I wanted to make is that the first, everything is cerebral. Yeah. She's totally in her head and she literally has an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. There's very little description of the actual sex, whether it was good, whether anyone came. Mm. She just is like thinking the whole time. Mm. It's just like very emotional urgency. And in the second, she literally says, I stayed in my body. There's a lot more description, there's a lot more everydayness and humour. More heart, 
I'd say. Yeah. And also more pleasure. But there's not emotion. There's not anything that's like love. Mm. And so there's a lot of ways you could read this and I'm simplifying it for not for the sake of not spoiling anymore. But I think the idea that comes through strongly here and that's been brewing in this whole discussion is that maybe your ghosts live in your head but you live in your body. And that your body, even in its fallibility, can be a refuge for the self that the mind can't reach. And I don't know, like likewise, you live in your body but your body isn't all that you are. I don't know, it's very twirly and like knotted up. But Nina is Nina in both instances and that's what I love about the contrasting descriptions. Like, I've never thought so in such a literary way about sex scenes in my life. Yeah. And that's, I was like, I couldn't stop thinking about the two, those two and being like, they're so different. (laughs) She did that so well. Yeah. So to round off, I want you to share the two epigraphs that Alderton has used to mark part one and part two of the novel because I think they cement how intentional and like crafted and directed her interest in these dichotomies of self are. Part one's epigraph is It is our imagination that is responsible for love, not the other person by Marcel Proust. Mm. And part two's epigraph is Love looks not with the eyes but with the mind and therefore is winged cupid painted blind by William Shakespeare. (laughs) So I think those epigraphs, obviously they're about the difference between imagination and um, reality. Yeah. And that makes me hope that she wanted someone to study that in the book. And so I hope that I have done it justice. (laughs) And I have two questions oh no I have one question for you because I've already oh, asked you okay. one as a result of my thinking about all of this and you're not going to be able to answer this straight away but okay do you think that love is real or is it a hallucination that lines up with someone else's hallucination for god's sake because I've been seriously messed up by the idea that like she's like yeah it's just your imagination that makes love real and like sometimes they imagine it back at you I guess. It's such a big question. Does it matter, though? Oh! She's throwing curveballs! Well, if you're... Even if you're both hallucinating that you're in love, you're still, like... You're still there. There. Okay, that makes me feel better. <laughs> Don't have to think about it anymore. Thanks. <laughs> um. Yeah, so that was, like I say, I have loads that I could say about this book, but that was the bit that got me thinking the most mm, that was very interesting I do need to read this because I, I love everything I know about love which mm-hmm. I know is totally different but like I loved her writing in that yeah so. I haven't really talked much <clears throat> about her style in mm-hmm. this one yeah but it is very Dolly Alderton yeah she because I'm signed up to her newsletter and she emailed out like a little snippet of it and it wasn't like anything like you read today it was it was just like a conversation between a bunch of the like friends mm. in it and it was just it was so funny yeah and i'm like yeah i really need to read this i definitely picked like the more serious parts to yeah to pick out but there is so much humor there is so much like funny observation about the different types of people that you end up knowing mm. in your life there's like so much she always writes about female friendship really well yeah in everything I know about love, female friendship is really romanticised. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's got a bit more of a, not cynical, but like sardonic, sardonic okay, yeah. um, look at what female friendship can be. Okay. It's, yeah, it's really good. I'd recommend. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
your writing been going lately? It's been going good. I've got like one thing to mention today, which is that me and our friend Stephanie, who's the one that helped me with our episode on A Song of Achilles, mm. have decided to team up as writing buddies. Um, so I saw that Stephanie wants to finish a first draft of her novel and so I reached out to her because I want to do the same and we decided to have like weekly catch-ups to just motivate each other basically and yesterday we had like our first FaceTime which was both of us just outlining our books to each other and getting an idea for like themes and inspirations and all stuff like that and we set like a couple goals for next week I'm just excited about it like I've been working on this project for quite a few months now but things have slowed down because you know I've been back at work and like starting uni and stuff again like I just don't have as much time as I did during lockdown Mm. but as I said this is really good motivation for both of us and I'm going to like strive to schedule writing time a bit more rigidly into my life yeah I don't want to like make it a chore but I know that by having this like weekly like meeting Mm -hmm. uh will like push me to actually have something to talk about yeah you want to have something to say yeah um so we are going to like critique each other's work some of the time but from our first conversation it sounds like we basically just want someone to bounce ideas off of rather Mm. than just like an editor yeah so I think it'll be a lot of fun I know it's very early days I think I already kind of prefer that approach to just like sending like sending something to someone to read yeah so yeah it's very exciting and I'm looking forward to reading Stephanie's novel because it sounds incredible by the way I've only heard little tiny bits about it but I really want to read it so yeah hurry up and finish it Stephanie I know on. I'm very honored to be part of the process and she's she's literally like she told me like two of the twists in it mm. but apparently there's like three other twists that she won't tell me because she wants me to like actually be surprised oh when I read God, it I love so that. I'm excited and yeah that's that's basically it today I highly recommend doing the same if you're in a bit of a writing slump yeah I think um, all the like NaNoWriMo hype and then also you and Stephanie talking about it is what mm-hmm. made me be like I want to write yeah. again but yeah I, I did consider doing NaNoWriMo this year but I just know I didn't have the time yeah like I'm I'm going to dedicate more time to writing, but I know I don't have the time to to do that many words. No, neither do I. What um what were your goals for this week? Just in case anyone's like wondering where to start. I can't really say. Oh, okay. <laughs> for spoiler reasons oh, okay, for my enough. novel. <laughs> I see. I thought it was like gonna be like word counts. Or no, something. it wasn't word counts. It's like certain scenes that we want to have written. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. How about you? How's writing been? Well, like I say, I kind of just got started again. Yeah. I, I wrote some um, poetry last month, which I was quite happy with, but I haven't really been writing regularly. But what I have been doing is listening to a lot of writers talking about their work. A little nugget that stuck with me, so I just thought I'd share that. I was listening to an interview with Wendy Cope, who is a poet that I love, and I've definitely shared work from her on here before. It was on a podcast called In Writing, um, which basically is like the most chill little podcast. They just interview writers like in their own space. It's like half hour episodes, very nice. And on it, she was speaking about like her writing journey and the way that she found her voice. And she said that, I found this really funny. She said that some of her old poems read like poor imitations of Sylvia Plath and some are like poor imitations of other poets. 
and of course she'd not published those but that at least that showed she was reading Mm. and she went on to say that when she would judge poetry competitions she would come across some entries that would never have won because they were too obviously taking instruction from someone else about what poetry should be rather than demonstrating their own voice but instead of putting that down which I think like a lot like I get the fear that I'm sounding too much like another writer Mm. all the time she didn't put that down she said I would think to myself this person might get somewhere because at least they're reading Mm. and I just found that so heartening because I think like again like I struggle so much with mixing up inspiration and like imitation Mm. and I worry that I'm just absorbing someone else's tone or their language but it got me thinking that maybe that's like okay maybe that's an essential part of like honing your own voice yeah so hearing someone that's like established and successful just not bashing that was quite validating Mm -hmm. and then she goes on to emphasize the importance of an authenticity of tone as an essential component of like a good poem or good writing in general where you feel like it's the truest and most like them way that a writer could express an idea. And the issue that I often have with that is that I know when I've done it, but I don't always know how to do it. Mm. So I think my corollary of that (laughs) was that I'll just keep writing shitty imitations of other people's voices and accidentally hitting on my own. And hopefully eventually my own will be clear enough to me that I can start out in it all the time. Yeah, well that is, to be fair, that's what we were taught in creative writing was... First of all, we were told to be a good writer, to be a good reader. So, like, mm-hmm. that's one point. But also, so many of those classes were us imitating yeah. other people. Like, you would study an author. It could either be, like, prose or poetry or whatever. It'd be, like, you'd look at this and it's, like, okay, so now you have to recreate this a poem in, in this style or, mm-hmm. I don't know, using this word or this meter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which I think... I think when I was doing that in class, I'd be, like, well, this is stupid because you're not teaching me how to write my own stuff yeah but like as you've just said like kind of you are (laughs) like you're kind of learning through that like your own voice yeah I think it is confused it's definitely confusing for me and I I don't feel like I've got enough examples of something that I know is completely my own voice to know what it is yeah but I do have some and I do like there are certain pieces of writing that I've done that I look at and I go yeah that's completely me Mm. I just don't know how I did that (laughs) Yeah, but weirdly some of them are ones that have stemmed from me trying to imitate someone else and I've just failed to imitate them but (laughs) But the idea has like got your own thing going so do you ever like what I was going to ask you is like how do you know when you've hit on your own do you like have like a feeling or do you just is it just instinctive I don't know (laughs) I know that's a hard one because I feel like if I knew like when I'm reading back old pieces, there are some that I'm like, oh yeah, I was going through like a, like Carly, oh I was clearly going through a Sylvia Plath phase then. Yeah. But like there are some that I'm like, oh no, this just, this sounds original. This sounds like me. Yeah, I probably agree. I don't think I have like a definitive answer, but sometimes I can just look at something and know if I was trying to copy someone or if I yeah. came up with it myself. It's always funny like when, because obviously we did create writing at uni and like, there's a lot of times, even when I was talking to Stephanie last night, she was like, oh, when I think of your writing, I think of this. Mm. But it's like, they, they like she was talking about that as if it had been some like really unique thing. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I like stole that from someone. <laughs> like, or not stole it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have an answer. 
I don't know. It's just like a weird... If if anyone who is a fellow writer has like a way that they identify their own voice. Yeah. Or has found like hallmarks of their own voice. Please share with us how you did that. Yeah. Because I don't know what my own voice is. I just know it when I see it. (laughs) I feel like I do a lot of like long repetitive sentences and I feel like that's quite me when I read that but that's about it (laughs) I've probably got that from someone I I think I do like a lot of the only like marker that I can really think of is that I do a lot of like blunt changes of direction yeah like and like when you read out that Adi LaRue where she interrupts and she says like I saw an elephant yeah that's quite me yeah 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 but that's like the only marker that I can think of (laughs) Yeah, whereas I think the sentences where she's like, and this is this, this, and this is this, this, and this, 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 that's a bit more me, Yeah, I think. Interesting. Yeah, food for thought. Do you have a quickfire favourite? I do. My quickfire favourite is a podcast, again. <laughs> <laughs> And it's Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so our friend Rhiannon told me about this and my auntie also told me to listen to it. So I finally did. And it's basically what it sounds like. Natalie Haynes, who's the author of A Thousand Ships and Pandora's Jar, two books I've talked about in past episodes, does some stand up all about classics. The typical episode is some stand up in front of a studio audience where she has like expert guests come on to. It's hilarious and somehow she even makes it funny when you get into like the more recent episodes which were recorded at home because of COVID. Mm. One episode I really loved was her telling the entirety of the Iliad, which bear in mind is 24 books in less than half an hour. It's funny and impressive. Oh my god, I really want to listen <laughs> yeah, to that. Yeah, it's good. But yeah, this is a very like informative podcast as well as entertainment. I actually feel smarter after I've listened to an episode, which mm. is great. And it's not just about Greek mythology, it's about like philosophers, writers, important figures in classics history. And I should add as well, Natalie breaks it all down into like digestible pieces of information. None of it feels like it's going over my head when I listen to it. No, even. and I know nothing about Greek mythology, but even the snippets I hear when you're listening, yeah. I can access it very easily. Yeah, yeah, you definitely like don't need to know anything about classics to listen to this. She explains it to you mm. uh, in a funny way. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. The episodes are only half an hour, so it's like an easy one to dip in and out of, despite how like highbrow the content sounds. But yeah, highly recommend if you're looking for a new podcast. Nice. <laughs> How about you? What's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite has probably been talked to death by the time this comes out, but it is Love Life on BBC iPlayer starring Anna Kendrick. It is a 10-part miniseries and each episode is about half an hour, so it's a good binge, um, but it's also a good dip in and out if you want. Mm. So it tells the story of Darby Carter, who is a young woman who works in art and antiquities, living her life in New York City. And it spans from her early 20s to her early 30s, following just like her friendships and relationships and milestones. And Pandora Sykes on the high-low compared it to This Is Us. And I can see why, because it does have all these like very human little vulnerable moments that make you want to cry. But I feel like it's much more understated than This Is Us. There's very little melodrama in love life. Every beat of it is just like crispy and real 
and I'd liken it more to Modern Love, the TV adaptation oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, from last year in terms of like its tone. So yeah, I think if you liked Modern Love, this is a really good just like autumny, wintry little binge and Anna Kendrick manages to play quite a serious role but she still lets her like comic timing shine through mm. which yeah it's just nice it's just good nice. i'd recommend <laughs> okay do you have a rant for us this week my rant this week is short okay and strives to be educational okay <laughs> Stop saying global pandemic. <laughs> Newsreaders, stop saying it. Politicians, stop saying it. Facebook warriors, stop saying it. Pandemics are by definition global. Pan, pangea, pansexual, panorama, pantheism means all-encompassing. That's what that prefix means. If it wasn't global, it would be an epidemic. If it's a pandemic, it's global. Stop saying global pandemic. It makes you look dumb, which most politicians are, but most people are not. So now you can spread the word, but not the virus. <laughs> well done. I thought that deserves a little applause. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. That is annoying. I see it every day at work. Yeah. And I have to take out the word global about 6,000 times a yeah. day. And it's just mm. too much. Interesting. Do you have an insight for us today? I do. So my insight today is a little Greek myth that I didn't know. Oh. So I found this on Pinterest. It's actually a screenshot from Tumblr from a user called Emily Skeggs and it's not written like classically <laughs> but I'm just going to read it out to you as is because okay. it made me laugh. Okay so she starts by saying okay I used to hate roses as a symbol of romance and shit or whatever until I learned why they're signs of love because it's the most metal creation myth of all time and then people reply to her and are saying why what's the story so she replies well okay have you all ever heard of the goddess of love aphrodite so in greek mythology all of the roses were white all of them with no exception white remember this detail it's important to the story so basically one day our local love bitch aphrodite was bragging to the other gods about how she could make anyone fall in love with anyone because she was the goddess of love and everyone got kind of irked with her bragging because it was annoying and Zeus, in his Zeus way, decided to pull a big prank on Aphrodite by making her fall in love with this mortal named Adonis. Adonis was a hunter, and this made Aphrodite crazy because hunting is super dangerous and she was thirsty for Adonis, right, and she didn't want him to die. Except, therein lies a prank, because Zeus made Adonis get gored by a wild boar, RIP, and he died. And here's where the thing with red roses comes in, because all roses are white, right? And right as Adonis was about to die, Aphrodite swooped down from the heavens in a golden chariot pulled by swans on a slide made of clouds, a cloud slide. As she rushed to his side, Aphrodite pricked her foot on a rose thorn and her blood landed on the petals of the rose and all of the roses around her became red with her blood as she mourned for her dead lover who was killed in the hunt by a violent wild boar, all because Zeus wanted Aphrodite to stop boasting. Basically, Red roses are a sign of romance because they were originally white, but the red ones are red because they're dipped in the blood of the goddess Aphrodite as she mourned the death of her lover. I actually had heard that, but it's such a good story. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that one. I knew it was Aphrodite's blood. I didn't know the 
Cloud Slide. <laughs> and Chariot of Slide. <laughs> but yeah, that um that's it. I just find that very entertaining. And I don't actually like roses usually. I think there's prettier flowers, but now I feel like anytime I see a red rose, I'm gonna remember that story. You take that and back. That's pretty cool. Red roses are the best flowers out there. Mm. There's nicer smelling and nicer looking flowers, in my opinion. <laughs> Do you have a question for this week? Yes, it was my turn to seek out a question and this one comes from our friend and regular listener Rhiannon and she asks If you made an audiobook of your novel would you read it out yourself? Ooh, interesting. Because I suppose the point's that if you're doing it yourself you know all the intonation and stuff, right? Yeah, but also like could you stand for people to... To hear it. To hear it. And I think she's asking us specifically because we do a podcast. (laughs) No, I don't think I would because also I know that an author can pick the person that mm-hmm. reads it out. They normally have like a bunch of people audition and you can pick the one that you think sounds the best. So I would just pick someone else to do it. Interesting. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's probably the smartest I think move. it's different if it's like an autobiography. Oh, yeah. But like, if it's a novel, I don't think it needs to be you speaking necessarily. See, my problem is that, like, my novel specifically has a lot to do with accents. Mm. So I would need someone that had a similar accent to mine. But I would need it to not be me, because I can barely listen to the playback of this. Yeah. So I don't think that I could have an audiobook that was me reading it. But yeah, just find someone with a Scottish accent. So there you go, Rianne. No, (laughs) we probably would not. Is that us? I think that's us. Okay. Um, if you have any comments or questions or anything like that, please email us at infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media that will be linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today. I also want to add, because I feel like we never mention this, but if you want to support us, please either share the podcast or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because that's how you get seen the most. Is yes. by leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app. Please do. And rate us five stars. Yes, please (laughs) only leave nice reviews. We do not care for bad reviews. But yeah, I think that's us. Yep. See you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.